The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the last day of our summer, seven day Sishin, 16th of January 2018. And we're going to take up another story from The Hidden Lamp, stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women, edited by Florence Caplow and Susan Moon. And this one is entitled uh, Song Young Doesn't Undress. And um, it's an, again um, from the 20th century uh, from Korea. I'll just go straight in and read the case of the, of the story. Master Hung Yok Sunim, during a lecture on liberation, said to the nun Song Yong Sunim, I'll tell you what, if I undress, will you undress as well? Song Yong replied, If you undress, that's fine. I'll undress as well. Mm, on second thought, I won't, because I fear sentient beings will fall into hell. To this he said, It's the same for me. Although I could undress in front of you, I fear for the negative karma of others, so I'll keep my clothes on. They both laughed. And this, this uh, story just, just happens to be um, commented on by Martine Batchelor. And um, she, as we'll see, she, um, she studied some with, with um, Song Yong Sunim. And um, in one of her other books, which is called um, Women on the Buddhist Path, um, she actually gives a, a, a more lengthy uh, biography of, of this nun and will be uh, drawing on, on some passages from that as we as we read through uh, Martin Batchelor's uh, commentary here. She says, I can imagine the scene. Hang Yok Sunim was a big man, twice the size of Song Yon Sunim, and here he is challenging her in front of a group composed of the fourfold assembly. The fourfold assembly means um, female and male monastics and female and male lay people. So these were the people, people who had gathered, who gathered to hear this Dharma talk. So he's, this is taking place in a, in a public lecture. He is saying to her that if he is capable of undressing without grasping and fear, can she too undress without grasping and fear? By that time, both are old and wrinkly. What a sight it would have been if they had done it. They are both mischievous in this moment, but cool heads prevail and they both decide not to undress out of compassion for sentient beings in the audience <laughs> who might be shocked <laughs> or might follow their example inappropriately. 
Hung Yok Sunim was a great Korean Zen master of the 20th century, who was a strong supporter of Korean nuns. He felt that they were practicing as diligently and as seriously as the monks, and possibly more so. The nun Song Yong Sunim was the leader of the Zen hall at a nunnery um, called Nai Wonsa. This beautiful temple nestled deep in the mountains near the southern tip of South Korea specializes in Zen practice. Twice a year for three month periods the nuns practice meditation for 10 hours or more a day. So really something like our schedule except for three months if you can imagine it. They also do three year retreats and sometimes they do special retreats for a week or two where they sit in meditation every night without lying down to sleep. Hangyok Sunim used to enjoy visiting these nuns since they were so keen and so fun-loving at the same time. He greatly respected Songyong Sunim and that they would often have uh, Zen exchanges. Songyong Sunim always gave as good as she got. Although Hangyok Sunim was fierce, Song Yong Sunim was never afraid of him and he enjoyed sparring with her. And um, in this um, Buddhist woman on the path, where there's quite a long account about her life, um, there are um, a couple of examples of other exchanges um, that these two had. Here they are. <clears throat> Master Kyobong um, Oh no, that's a different a different master. I'll tell you that one anyway. This is his her exchange with a with an, another a brother monk to the one we're looking at, Master Hangyok. Um, master Kyobong once wrote on a piece of paper, Where do all the sutras come from? And where did the Buddha get them from? And um, she replied to him, why, great monk, do you bother with distracted thoughts like that? He nodded and laughed. And this is one with with Master Hyangok, who's in our in our story. And she describes him, because um, this this account is in her own words, as being strong and rough, indeed quite frightening. I remember him shouting at us once. You are here in great numbers, but what are you doing? Eating food, taking care of yourselves, sightseeing, just gobbling up the rice of the laity. Why are you playing around all day? Why don't you practice? And then at the end of his talk, he shouted, 10,000 mud and juiceries are here. Find the true and original one and then stormed off to his room. And she, re she recounts, I ran after him in my formal ro robes, shouting, the true Manjusri, the Buddhas of the three periods, the patriarchs of the lineage, the masters of the present age, they all come out of my nostrils. He laughed and asked, where are your nostrils? I answered, originally there are no nostrils. But as I cannot speak without saying something, I said it this way. 
He laughed again and said, You put much effort into your practice. Make the young nuns practice well and guide them. Shortly after this encounter, he died. He had given this lecture because he knew he did not have long to live. I think we can take his, his strong words to heart and um, examine ourselves. Are we, are we just playing around all day or are we really practicing? Back to um, Bachelor's Commentary. This is talk talking about, about Song Yung Sinin. Um, she was very humble in daily life. But in this exchange, we see her coming into her own as a great Zen practitioner. She started life out poor and meek and encountered a lot of obstacles, but she found the courage to become a nun. By practicing hard, her inner strength and resilience were able to flower. She was renowned for her strong and deep meditative practices. And he's turning back to this biography again, to just a little bit more about her hard life and and her, and her experiences, her meditative experiences. Um, she was born um, in 1903 in a little, in a little village um, outside one of um, a minor city in, in Korea. And she says, we were poor, farming peasants. And when I was nine, my mother died. I had an older brother and sister and a younger sister of five. Our father grieved terribly over our mother's death, but failed to take good care of us. Life became very difficult, and finally it was so bad I decided to kill myself. But as soon as I made that decision, I heard a voice from the sky say, Your affinity with the Buddha is great. Why end your life? I understood this to mean that I should become a nun. So at 18, I made my way to a nunnery called Yongonam, near the monastery of Magoksa. At first, I was refused admission because I was so small. Then an elderly nun, Inusunim, said that although I was small, otherwise I looked all right. Thus, I was accepted. Um, 
she was probably rejected um, because they were concerned about her being able to to uh, withstand uh, the hard life that that um, uh, female monks um, endured in the monasteries. This was this was at a time when Korea was not wealthy. It was um, occupied by the Japanese, um, and life in the monasteries was not easy. Apart from this, the just the schedule of um, of sittings and so forth, um, the work to run the monasteries would be hard work. Later, it describes her having to um, go into the mountains with a with a carrying frame on her back to chop and collect firewood, and then coming back and having to 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 tend to the the fires in the kitchens um, to cook the food for the for the monastery. But she was she was eventually accepted, and and it was um, quite a few years later. She was, uh, I think, eighteen when she came in uh, to the nunnery, and it wasn't until she was in her early thirties that she met um, her teacher. And just a comment: um, e even even our fairly light schedule that we have at the centre. Um, you have to be reasonably f um, well, physically fit and well, and mentally, for that matter, in order to um, to follow the the, the schedule um, all the way with all the sittings and the work, and it can be and it can be pressured at times. So again, it's it's. Um, As, um, as the master told um, her to, to encourage the young nuns to practice hard, um, we, we don't know, we don't, we, we are able to, to practice and do sessions now. We have um, good health, good karma, but we don't know uh, when that will change. And that's one of the, the reasons for really um, being sure that we don't waste our time. When we have the, the, these opportunities. So skipping forward to um, her encounter with um, this other master called Mangong. Gone to his monastery with uh, uh, a, a friend, also um, a female monk, and um, then before leaving, she she decided that she wanted to learn more about Huado. Now we've come across this this expression before. Um, it's the one that's used in Korea and, and in Japan and in China to refer to uh, the koans. 
Um, so they use that in preference to koan or gongan in, in Chinese. And it literally, it, it means the, the nub of the koan. So if you're working on, on mu, the huado is the word mu. The whole koan is the story about the monk coming and asking Joshua about the dog and whether it has wooden nature. And this word, this word huado, literally means head of speech. And so it's the crux, the crucial part, the, the, the core that one then, then takes up and, and, me, and meditates with questions. Um, and it comes from the idea that um, speech emerges out of, out of something that is prior to speech. So um, head of speech means the source of words, you could say. So we're kind of using a word, whether it's mu um, or what or um, other koans to go um, to what is prior to speech so that that's where this this head of speech term comes from so she says that I decided to learn more about the Huado from Master Mangong I'd never really had the opportunity to ask him questions because I was always so busy in the kitchen. Although I'd listened to his Dharma lectures and had tried to put into practice what he advised, I had usually given up after a short while. As yet I had not seriously taken up a Huado. Master Mangong usually taught the Huados, the thousand things return to the one, where does the one return to, and Mu and what is it? I realized that if I really wanted to med meditate, I had to have my own huado. So one day I visited Mangong in his bedroom, in Master Mangong in his room. He was sitting there alone. I bowed three times and told him, I would like to have a huado. Please teach me a huado. Although he had seen me enter, he had still not looked up. He sat there with his eyes closed. I felt very nervous and wondered if he was behaving in this way because he thought that I, being so small, could not practice. I became sad and began to think of all my shortcomings. Then after about, we have to, have to understand that the courage it took, would have taken to go into the into the lion's den so, so to speak um, and and just encounter the master in this way and then he says nothing he doesn't even open his eyes so she's sitting there before him then after about 30 minutes minutes of silence I decided to leave at that moment, he suddenly opened his eyes wide and shouted, Since you are incapable of knowing where is the head or tail, what kind of head of speech are you talking about? I was so surprised by this outburst that my chest felt heavy and my heart pounded as if I had been struck by a ball. I did not know what to do. I felt so distressed to have been given a scolding instead of a huado that I hurried out of the back door without asking him anything more.
Shortly after, I left with my preceptress. I was very glad to go with her, um, but I felt that's like a senior nun to her. I f but I felt it felt like there was a coagulated mass in my chest, brought about by the shock of my encounter with Master Mangong. I was still overwhelmed by distress and concern about not having a huado. Not long after we arrived at an, another monastery, uh, Chong'an Sunim, a disciple of Mangong, visited from um, a ma the main monastery nearby, where he held the post of Zen advisor. I asked him if he would teach me a little about a huado, so I could practice meditation properly. He explained, exclaimed, if you did not learn a huado from Master Mangong, from whom will you ever learn? This distressed me even more, and I pondered on the fact that for a second time a great monk was rebuking me. Once more I was overwhelmed by anxiety and shame. Um, we wonder about whether, whether the first and the second master were in communication about their, their way of, of, of working with um, Her. I think it's fair to say that this 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 um, this style of of um, of encounter um, relies on uh, the, the person receiving it. And this kind of this kind of harsh approach, having a lot of faith. And, and especially having, having great faith in the teacher. And um, presumably Master Mangong would have, would have um, intuited this in, during that half hour where she sat before him waiting for um, some teaching. And you'll see how this unfolds. A few days later, the meditation season began. Thirty nuns had gathered in the Zen hall, all diligent meditators. We decided to begin with a 30-day period of strenuous meditation. But I could not think of practicing seriously anymore. I just felt great distress and shame thinking everybody was probably wondering what on earth I was doing during the meditation periods. I had to, I, I, <clears throat> I had, uh, <clears throat> I had to make tea in the mornings, but for the rest of the time I sat in meditation. Sometimes I experienced distressing thoughts, sometimes doubts like, why can't I, I practice like the others? And why did the monks always rebuke me and not give me a huado? For the next 21 days, this mind of self-reproach did not abate. I lost the need to sleep and spoke to no one. Then I found myself in a state of vivid clarity. At 11.30, the other nuns would go to sleep in the meditation hall in their respective places. 
but I would go to the side room and meditate all night. Slowly, a vivid, tranquil state of mind arose. All distracted thoughts dissolved and only clarity and quiescence remained. Occasionally, the question, what is it, would arise. All trace of distress disappeared, leaving the mind clear and pure. So, obviously, um, she didn't just stay in some kind of um, ruminating state, thinking about what had happening, had happened and, and feeling sorry for herself about the fact that she had been mistreated. But when she asked these questions, why did the monks always rebuke me and not give me a huado and so forth, she was really, she was really, uh, it gave rouse to real doubts. Why? Why? Why was she being treated this way? And we begin to see that that there was there was, although it appears very harsh, there was a wisdom in um, Master Mangong's approach. In that he he appeared to be not giving her a huado, but in actual fact, his response, she took and and transformed into into a wado into deep questioning and over and over a period of intense questioning and um, hours and hours and hours and hours of sitting this 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 questioning ripened to the point where um, she says, all distracted thoughts dissolved and only clarity and quiescence remained. And into this, the question would come, what is it? This was her huado, clearly. So, um, s sometimes people, people will hear these, these stories and um, you know, there's somebody not not sleeping um, or uh, undergoing other kinds of austerities that we we mentioned some of them yesterday sleeping on the on the bare floor unheated monasteries this sort of thing we may hear this and think um, that these these will never uh, get to that kind of level of dedication and and engagement with our practice and it can make the whole thing seem quite remote. But another way of looking at it is just to be, to be able to recognize that um, this, this is, is a possibility for human beings to get to this point of engagement with the practice, to, to question deeply, to have a, this, this burning desire to realize the nature of the mind and to be completely gripped by that that longing and we can just uh, we can just feel admiration for uh, such a practitioner as um, as this this nun And that this admiration, this respect, this uh, 
even 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 veneration we could say is 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 part of um, taking refuge in sangha, which we chant every day. It, it is it is as people um, such as uh, Songyon Sunim who who can inspire us. Doesn't mean we will will uh, get to their heights necessarily, uh, but they they are um, enormously important figures for us. That's why it's so important to hear their stories. Think of that line we have in the um, um, repentance ceremony. The Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas in the past were like us, and we will in the future become Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Suddenly, a single thought pierced right through me, all the way up to the top of my head. The thought was so powerful that a voice came out of me which said, Since originally there is no head or tail, where could either of them be? So this was her, her, her realization of the question she had been asked by Mangong, Master, Master Mangong. Shortly after this, Chongam Sunin came back to the nunnery. I told him the self-reproach had pierced through me to the point where I felt I could toss the great masters over my shoulder. He explained that this was the great doubt on the point of bursting. I still had to grow more, it still had to grow more before it burst, but once it had, then the practice would progress easily. The following day, he pinned up a notice on the wall of the Zen Hall which read, Riding the bottomless iron boat, there is no hindrance to crossing the land. Riding the bottomless iron boat, there is no hindrance to crossing the land. When I read this, it suddenly occurred to me that in the midst of mind, there are no hindrances. Only the doubt remained, and even that would disappear. The next time we met, I told him how I understood the bottomless iron boat to be the mind. I added that because fundamentally the mind has no hindrances, it has no difficulties in crossing the land. He replied that the doubt had now burst and my practice was going well. It seemed this was the first time he had come across a nun whose doubt had burst so greatly and it prompted him to return to Chonggyesa to practice with even greater vigor under Master Mangong. Apparently, he was afraid of being surpassed by his, in his practice by a nun. I now had no distracted thoughts at all. My mind was absolutely clear and quiet, and great faith was arising. I was pleased with the faith which poured out of me and could think of nothing except practicing meditation.
And just now returning to our, our little exchange about these, these, these two elderly monks and their, and their undressing. And it, they, this little exchange happens during a lecture on liberation. So um, we can we can um, just appreciate the kind of um, the, the the resonances of this undressing. Another story in the hidden lamp um, from China, seventeenth century China. Um, a master asks his student, the nun. Qi Yuan Xingyang Gang. Buddha nature is not illusory. What was it like when you were nourishing the spiritual embryo? And this is, this image of the spiritual embryo comes from Taoism, but it was also um, employed in, within Buddhism. Qi Yuan replied, it felt congealed, deep and solitary. And of course the spiritual embryo is our, our uh, Buddha nature, sometimes called Tathagatagarbha, the the the, um, the embryo of the Tathagata. When you gave birth to the embryo, what was it like? Shiwan replied, "It was like being completely stripped bare." So this in this process of giving birth to the spiritual embryo, realizing our true nature, there is this, this aspect of being completely stripped bare, stripped of our, of our opinions, our certainties, our doubts too. All of it has to be, be let go of. All, our, all, our, all of the cherished ideas we have about ourselves, who we are, what we are. This is a, this is a theme that, that one finds um, not only within um, Buddhist teaching, There's a, there's a poem by Rumi um, on this, on this, um, what includes comments on this idea of undress. He says, um, Love comes with a knife, not some shy question, and not with fears for its reputation. We think of these two monastics and and uh, talking about about um, undressing. They were not they were not um, embarrassed or at all self conscious, and in, in they really were ready to to bear all. Um, and 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 you could say you could say they're really um, they're truly comfortable in their own skins, wrinkly and old as those skins may have been. They're at ease with their, with 
their physical being. Though even saying that is really too dualistic. They weren't thinking, I am at ease with my, with my being. They just were as they were, not, not fearing for what people might think about them or how they might regard them. Rumi continues, I say these things disinterestedly, accept them in kind. Love is a madman, working his wild wiles, tearing off his clothes, running through the mountains, drinking poison, and now quietly choosing annihilation. Love is a madman. It's, it's practicing is, is, is pretty insane too when you, when you think of all the kinds of extreme states of mind we go through, um, all, the, all the dramas and the, the struggles that we have in the history of literature, um, love is often uh, associated with madness. And we, we um, working on, a, on, a, on the practice as a kind of falling in love with it, uh, merging, marrying, till death to us part. And you could say we're pretty crazy to even attempt what we're attempting, to, to given the strength of our conditioning, um, who but the foolish would take up the task? The Buddha talked about practice as being, as being like going against the stream. So s swimming upriver against the currents. Rumi talks about this madman um, quietly choosing annihilation. I don't know what word this annihilation is a translation of from the from the Persian, but in from Buddhist point of view, we could talk about um, about a kind of a kind of. Um, disappearing into our involvement with the practice. I think earlier in Sishin I may have quoted the, the, the Genjo Koan, the famous part of, of Dogen's Genjo Koan, which, which captures this. He says, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. And it goes on, to be enlightened by the 10,000 things is to cast off one's body and mind and the bodies and minds of others as well. All trace of enlightenment disappears and this traceless enlightenment continues endlessly. 
this is the 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 um, the kind of a, you could say annihilation, though it doesn't quite fit here. Um, more more a sense of of there being an emptying out, which precedes a fullness. We forget the self, and because we've forgotten the self, we can be enlightened by the ten thousand things. Body and mind of ourselves and others are cast off. This means that no, there are no boundaries, no separation, even as everything remains distinct, clear. There are love stories and there is an obliteration into love. You've been walking the ocean's edge, holding up your robes to keep them dry. You must dive naked under and deeper under, a thousand times deeper. Love flows down. You've been walking at the ocean's edge, holding up your robes to keep them dry. We can, we can, we can pussyfoot around in our practice, play it safe. Maybe we make an effort, but it's, it's 85% or 90%, not 100. But it, it, this practice demands that we give it, it everything. that we dive without knowing where that dive will end. The ground submits to the sky and suffers whatever comes. Tell me, is the earth wor worse for giving in like that? It's pointing here to this, this, this losing of ourselves in, in the practice. Is, is a kind of surrender and if this practice is about one thing it's about surrendering letting go giving up I think it was Uchiyama Roshi who said gain is delusion loss is enlightenment Don't put blankets over the drum. Open completely and let your spirit ear listen to the green dome's passionate murmur. Let the cords of your robe be untied. Shiver in this new love beyond all above and below. The sun rises, but which way goes the night? I have no more words. Let the soul speak with the silent articulation of a face. Let the cords of your robes be untied. And go beyond words as, as Rumi comes to silence at the end of this poem. I have no more words. Let the soul speak with the silent articulation of her face. 
let the koan speak with your whole body Here it's speaking through the song of the Tui, the light on the ground. The incense smoke rising. Well, our time is nearly up. <coughs> Just, just um, returning to the last part of, of our uh, commentary here on our on our story. Uh, Martin Bachelor says, "What is characteristic of these two great people and their interaction is the importance they give to the precepts." Some people think that having a Zen awakening means one can go beyond all boundaries and be totally unattached to any sense of morality. Hangyok Sunim and Songyong Sunim were awakened Zen teachers. Nevertheless, they chose to live by their ethical training, not just for themselves but also as an example to others. In Korea, there's a great emphasis on the practice of the three trainings of ethics, meditation and wisdom. This story is embodying these three. Because of wisdom, Hangyok Sunim and Songyon Sunim are not attached to or identified with their appearances. Because of meditation, they are stable and balanced and fearless. Because of ethics, they do not only consider their own actions, but the effects these actions could have on others. We, this is a good place for us to to um, to stop on this uh, seventh day of our session um, because now very shortly uh, the session will be over um, us our, our seven days of of um, being able to just focus on the practice have seven days of space for the meditation aspect of these of these three aspects of our practice is ex extraordinary that we have this this good karma but that is is ending now and we are going to be returning to our, our jobs and families and and all the complications of our lives uh, hopefully we return a little wiser a little more aware more a little more um, knowledge of ourselves at least that but we're going to be called upon pretty much immediately to then put that wisdom into practice in our lives and we can we can um, take guidance from from this um, description that Martin Batchelor gives of the nature of, of of upholding the precepts, the single sentence, deep concern for the effects of our actions on others. To live our lives with that spirit, 
may, may we all take care. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to turn. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org dot org dot nz